In our last study together, we saw Joseph. Joseph's life took yet another unfortunate turn for the worse. After being sold into slavery by his brothers, Joseph is ultimately purchased by a very powerful Egyptian whose name was Potiphar. Though no one would have ever blamed Joseph for being a little bitter about his present situation. This young man, as we've seen in weeks past, he had an incredible attitude. Facing tragedy, unfairness, hardship, Joseph made a decision. He chooses to make the most of the life that was before him. No use in complaining about it. Over the course of the next few years, Joseph actually proves to be such a faithful servant that Potiphar places him in charge over his entire household. Regrettably, though, Joseph's newfound position places him in a dynamic where he draws the longing eyes of Potiphar's wife. Day after day, this lecherous woman tries to get Joseph to relent to her sexual whims. Finally, one day, things reached ahead. This woman grabs hold of Joseph's coat, commanding him to lie with her. Out of options, Joseph. He righteously resists her sexual advances by choosing to instead flee the home. He runs, leaving behind his outer garment. Well, in a tragic twist, to save face, this wicked and vindictive woman spins a tale whereby she unjustly accuses Joseph of rape. As a result, we read in Genesis 39, verse 20, Then Joseph's master, Potiphar, took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. Here we find Joseph, at no fault of his own, being falsely accused, slandered, and thrown into prison. He's done nothing to warrant such a punishment. He's not even given an opportunity to defend himself for the simple crime of doing what was right. Joseph's life has gone from bad to much, much worse. Well, verse 21 of Genesis 39, we're told, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners <clears throat> who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. <clears throat> the keeper of the prison did not look into anything that, would, that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Once again, while circumstantially, I am sure that it was very difficult to reconcile God's grace and his favor with Joseph's plight. This man's faith, though, his faith in God, it never wavered. Not only are we told that in this plight, going from bad to worse, that the Lord was with Joseph, but we're told on account of whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. As a result, just like we saw in Potiphar's household, the keeper of the prison, recognizing God's hand on Joseph's life, that what Joseph did prospered, we're told he committed to Joseph's hand full control of the jail. It's an amazing thing. 
So much so that the text tells us that the prison keeper did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority. This man was completely trustworthy. Well, chapter 40, verse 1, it came to pass that after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them, so they were, while in custody, a while. Then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream, both of them, each man's dream in one night, and each man's dream with his own interpretation. And Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of his Lord's house, saying, Why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, We each have had a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Tell them to me, please. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph. And said to him, Behold, in my dream a vine was before me, and in the vine were three branches. It was as though it budded. Its blossoms shot forth, its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and presented them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. But remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh, and get me out of this house. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and also I have done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon. Well, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good. He said to Joseph, I also was in my dream, and there were three white baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Pretty uplifting. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker. So Joseph as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Chapter 40 opens with the introduction of two new characters to the king's prison, placed specifically into the care of Joseph. They're known only as the butler and the baker of Pharaoh. Though the text does not tell us what these two men may have done to anger and offend their lord, drawing such ire from Pharaoh that they were both incarcerated. 
it is likely that whatever had taken place to offend Pharaoh had been severe enough to warrant the ultimate execution of the baker. Now, before we move any further, I, I do think a mistake is made by, by making a very common assumption about our passage. And the assumption is that ultimately the baker was totally guilty all along of something, and the butler was totally innocent. Almost every pastor I heard comment on this passage, actually, they, they postulate the same theory, that likely an assassination attempt had been mounted against Pharaoh, probably poisoning, which is why you have the butler in charge of the cup and the baker in charge of the food, the prime suspects. As a result, they're incarcerated while the investigation takes place. I've heard this over and over and over again. The problem with this theory, though, is that not only does the text fail to make that distinction, stating plainly that both men offended Pharaoh. There's no mention of an assassination attempt, no mention of an ongoing investigation. But here's the thing. The ultimate restoration from our text of the butler and the condemnation of the baker it appears to have been made independent of their presumed guilt or innocence. Almost on a whim, Pharaoh, in celebrating his own birthday, decides to restore the butler, and the baker gets hanged. So we make some assumptions that I think lead to false conclusions from our text, and we'll kind of explore those a little bit later in the study. Regardless, Moses tells us that after remaining in custody, we're told for a while, this is an unspecified amount of time. A particular night does arise where both the butler and the baker end up having uniquely different but equally vivid dreams. Now let's very quickly just recap the dreams themselves. The butler's dream. The butler saw in his dream a vine before him. And in the vine there were three branches. Additionally, he observes that these three branches looked as though they had budded, with blossoms shooting forth, its clusters bringing forth ripe grapes. So upon seeing Pharaoh's cup was in his hand, the butler proceeds to take the grapes, press them into the cup, and placing that cup into Pharaoh's hand, this particular dream. The baker's dream, a little different. We're told he saw in his dream three white baskets upon his head. Now there's no mention in the text of the two lower baskets. But he does observe that in the uppermost basket, there were all kinds of baked goods. Sadly, though, before the baker was able to present any of these goods to Pharaoh, birds came out and they ate what was in the basket. Now, it's true that both of these dreams likely manifested from a compilation of various fragments of their own memories. It's how dreams operate. The butler was used to making wine, presenting the cup to Pharaoh, similar to his dream. The baker was in charge of providing meals, once again, similar to his dream. And yet, for whatever reason, both of these men awoke from their dream, sensing unequivocally that what they had just witnessed possessed somehow and in some way, a deeper meaning. The reality is that each of these men awoke the next morning, fully convinced that they had been given some kind of prophetic vision 
from God concerning their future. And yet, the, the, the problem, the source of their frustration, was an inability to interpret what, what each dream intended to reveal. There is no doubt that this inability to ascertain the meaning of these dreams was very troubling for both the butler and the baker, so much so that when Joseph approaches them, he's making his rounds in the morning, he gets to these two guys, he sees the consternation on their face. It's visible. Concerned. What does Joseph do? He asks, fellas, why do you look so sad today? Which is kind of a, an obvious question. We're in prison, in a dungeon, not a real happy-go-lucky place, but there was something about it. What's troubling you? Well, after hearing their explanation about the dreams, Joseph proceeds to say something. Which you might gloss over initially, but I find it to be deeply fascinating. He says to them, he asks, do not interpretations belong to God? And, and then he says, tell me the dreams, please. He's even polite. Now, what makes that statement? Do not interpretations belong to God? What makes that so mind-blowing is what it reveals about Joseph. Think about it. Here we have a man who'd himself been given a dream, two dreams, by God, as well as the interpretation, an interpretation that spoke of a future exaltation that he would encounter, he would experience one day. After receiving those dreams, what happens? The next 10 years, Joseph literally fails to see even one aspect of God's revelation come to fruition. Like, in actuality, it's been the contrary. He gets these two dreams about being exalted. The next 10 years, not only is he not exalted, but what happens? He descends and descends and descends. Like how easy it would have been for Joseph to have gone by, hey, what's troubling you guys? We had dreams and they're from God. And for him to be like, okay, been there, done that. Like he could have easily been pessimistic, condescending. He could have even been filled with unbelief. As William M. Taylor wrote, many a man having had his experience of dreams, would have said to these prisoners, think no more about them. They are mere delusions. I too have had my dreams. And once they seem to me prophetic, but those dreams only mock me, and it will be the same with you. And yet, that is not Joseph's reaction in the slightest, is it? Like the very fact he says, do not interpretations belong to God. It reveals the fact that Joseph still, even while facing the disappointments of prison, maintained a steadfast confidence in the truthfulness of God's word and the trustworthiness of God's promises, even when he had no circumstantial evidence to rely upon. You see, Joseph... He was able to endure this prison for one simple reason. He knew God's word and therefore knew God's promises would never fail him. And it was this truth that filled Joseph's life with strength. 
It was that confidence in God's word that gave him purpose. Even when his situation went from bad to worse and grew more daunting. Holocaust survivor, Corey Ten Boom, once remarked that the key to endurance, I love this, is to let God's promises shine on your problems. It's a profound statement when you take into account her particular story. Friend Paul, the Apostle Paul, he would even write from his own prison cell in a letter to the Philippians that he was confident of this very thing, that he, speaking of Jesus, who has begun a good work in you, will complete it. It's powerful. For Joseph, God's word remained the anchor that stayed his soul even in the fiercest of storms. And it's in comprehending Joseph's perspective of his prison that we come to understand his behavior in his prison. If God's word was still sure, then the prison itself was invariably part of God's plan. And if it was part of God's plan, then you know what? God had a reason. How amazing that Joseph found purpose in his suffering by seeking to comfort fellow sufferers. Instead of self-pity, Joseph occupied his time serving his fellow prison mates. Friend, I cannot emphasize this enough. The power and the importance of serving others when you find yourself in a place of suffering. So often in such seasons, in such times, it's easy, probably even natural, for us to allow our gaze to turn inwards to our own self-detriment. When the key to suffering, to enduring, to being healed in it, is to not look inward, but to take an opportunity to look upward and then to look outward. To get your eyes off of your problems and onto the fact that there are other people with problems. That's not unique to you. I can't tell you, just on a side note, how encouraging. Like when I was studying this and writing about this, Sean Baruccio came to my mind. Because she has gone through incredible suffering with her cancer over the last year, year plus. And yet what is such an exhortation is the ministry that she has at the cancer center. The people that she, while she's getting radiation and chemo, she's witnessing to people and encouraging people and being salt and light. And I dare say that it's in doing that that God has given her some purpose, even in the midst of her pain. In prison, Joseph, he found meaning by looking for opportunities to be a servant. Like it's how he knew that these two men were sad. He walks by, he sees them. You're sad. Now, many of us would be like, ah, I don't want to deal with that. I got my own issues. I'm going to go this way. Awkward. But no, he's looking for an opportunity. He sees their sorrow. He asks, he's inquiring. You know, it was Joseph's servant's heart. We're told in our text that he served them before the dreams. And it was the fact that he showed that he loved them and he cared for them, that when he inquires why they're sorrowful, that they're willing to reply and to open up their hearts and to share what God was saying. 
Once again, it's to this point that William N. Taylor writes, Those who have been themselves held in trouble are the most efficient helpers of others when they are in trial. Yes, it is only through suffering that we learn to sympathize. Thus, we may console ourselves under our own trials with the thought that God is endowing us thereby with the gift of sympathy and fitting us to become sons and daughters of consolation to others in affliction. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Why? That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. <clears throat> Keep in mind, friend, it was because Joseph allowed himself in the prison to be comforted by God that then and only then he was effectively able to comfort those around him. Now, before we dig into the meaning of these two dreams, it is important you first understand that while God can and does, there are numerous examples throughout, throughout Scripture, examples after example after example, of God speaking through dreams. Keep in mind, not every dream is divinely inspired. As a matter of fact, it could have been the fact that you, you ran the risk, you gambled, and you had lunch at Quick Trip. That could be the source of your dreams, which leads to the obvious question, right? Like, how do you know if a dream is from God? It appears not only is illustrated in this text, but demonstrated in almost every instance a dream is of divine origin in Scripture, that these unique dreams, whereby God is seeking to reveal something to a person, they're always coupled with an unshakable sense upon awaking that the dream itself was not normal and instead divinely initiated for a specific purpose. My point is that if you're given a dream by God, when you wake up, you're going to know it. You're going to wake up and be like, snap, that was not a normal dream. God is trying to say something to me. I had a friend a couple years back have a dream. Wasn't a believer. I'd known this young lady for years. She was wrestling, struggling, fighting God. She had a dream, woke up, freaked out, knew it was from God, didn't know what it meant. So she thought, I don't know who to call, so I'll call Zach. Okay. So, I mean, she calls me first thing in the morning, freaking out. I'm like, slow it down. I'll meet you at Starbucks. So we met. She told me this dream. And I'm sitting there the whole time thinking, I don't interpret dreams, like, but it was in the process of it that there was this word of knowledge that came, that God was, God was trying to get through to her. As a result of a dream, that young lady gave her life to the Lord in Starbucks. If you get a dream from God, you will know it. That's my point. 
Now, the second component to the entire concept is interpretations, right? Though it's only logical that if God gives a dream, he holds the interpretation of such a dream, the question still begs. How is Joseph so confident that he's going to be given the interpretation? It's one thing to know interpretations come from God, that there's an interpretation. How does Joseph know that he's got this? The truth, I have no idea. It would seem, even before he hears the dreams, that God somehow moved on Joseph's heart, letting him know that God was going to give him the interpretation. Almost in much the same way that the butler and the baker knew their dreams were divine, Joseph sensed right from the beginning that God would give him the meaning. Now, not to digress, but there are two additional points about dreams that I need to make. One, dreams will never contradict the revelation of God's word, ever. Instead, I'm convinced dreams are designed to simply be a work of the Holy Spirit, confirming a work the Holy Spirit's already doing actively in the heart of that person. A lot of the times if you study dreams, you'll, you'll find that they're, they're, they're used in lives of unbelievers and not believers throughout Scripture. The second point, though, well, I'm not saying that you can't be used by God to interpret another person's dream. I've had that unique experience. And while the Bible does indeed describe gifts of wisdom, gifts of knowledge, gifts of discernment, that might be applicable. Dream interpreter is not a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not listed in Scripture. If you ever run across someone who's like, yep, my gift from God, I interpret dreams. No, you don't. And you turn and you walk, because that's not something. It's not listed as a gift of the Spirit. You can use discernment. You can pray, Lord, give me an interpretation. But you don't have that gift. That's what I'm saying. Now, let's look at the meaning of these dreams. Upon hearing the butler's dream, the Lord gives Joseph quite an encouraging interpretation. He tells him, the three branches, three days, within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, restore you to your place, you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner. Sounds great. Pretty uplifting. Upon seeing that he got a favorable interpretation, the baker is like, dude, I'm getting in on this action. Sadly, his interpretation, not so good. Joseph informs him, the three baskets, three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Once again... How in the world does Joseph know that these three branches or three baskets represent three days? Once again, I have no idea. Other than the fact that God revealed it to him. In actuality, what this does tell us is that Joseph was so confident his interpretation was from God and therefore correct with both dreams that he was willing to give himself only three days to either be validated or proven wrong. Not surprisingly, Joseph's interpretation proves to be correct. We're told in verses 21, 22, on the third day, Pharaoh restored the chief butler, but he hanged the chief baker. Now, before we look at the larger purpose behind this particular story, I do think it's important that we just take a minute and point out the obvious boldness that Joseph demonstrates as a servant and therefore interpreter of God's word for these men. I don't think I'm going out on a limb 
when I say that we would all rather preach the butler sermon. That's a good sermon, right? The butler sermon. It's a sermon of forgiveness and restoration. We would much rather preach that message, man, it preaches, than we would the baker's sermon. You know, one of judgment, death, execution, wrath. And yet, Joseph's bold, man. Joseph was willing to preach both messages when those messages were warranted. You see, Joseph, one of the things you take from the text is that he's clearly more interested in communicating the truth of God's word than he was with pleasing men. (laughs) I'm sure it was easy to tell the butler what was coming. But then he hears, right, the dream of the baker and his heart stirred. There's a moment in time. Joseph knows what the message is. Words haven't come out of his mouth yet. That he's got to be thinking to himself, do I really want to say that? Is that really the message this guy needs? And yet he's bold and he's faithful. I mean, this was a brutal message, but it was a necessary one. I imagine that Joseph, he looked at the the baker and tears welled up in his eyes. This was not easy. He's not cavalier. He's got to break the news to this man that he had three days left and then judgment. I imagine his love, it was palpable. He's honest. You know, I think it's sad. When we avoid telling people that we've been called by God to serve, people we claim to love, that his word clearly states that if they continue in their rejection of Jesus, that if they continue in their rejection of his sacrifice, that their future destiny will include a real judgment, a very real hell, that we're doing those people a grave disservice. Well, Zach, it's just, it's not a kind message, but it's a true one. If you know the truth and you're seeing someone head towards wrath and destruction and judgment, isn't it the loving thing to do? To get toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose and say, stop! This is where your destiny is headed. I love you enough to tell you what's brutal, but what's honest, what's real. Don't go this way. Pastor Timothy Keller emphasizes the importance of honestly teaching such difficult things, writing, to preach the good news, we must preach the bad. It's only because of the doctrine of judgment and hell that Jesus' proclamation of grace and love are so brilliant and astounding. The reality is that God's word really only presents two fundamental messages for humanity. God's amazing grace demonstrated when you accept Jesus and what he did for you. What he did for your sin. Or the fact that God's wrath and judgment await those who reject what Jesus has done. Those are the only two messages we're equipped with. Now while it's true, 
that this story is included in the Genesis record because it sets the stage for what's about to happen next in chapter 41. It's really an amazing tale. Joseph, he ends up in this prison. Just so happens that in this prison, we find the butler who has a dream that Joseph just so happens to interpret. This man ends up restored to Pharaoh. Joseph tells him, if you get restored, remember me, get me out of here. What happens? The butler forgets. Is it an accident? No. Why? Because two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. And then the butler's like, snap. I know a guy who interprets dreams. So that Joseph comes before Pharaoh, interprets the dream, ends up becoming the second most powerful man on the planet by the end of the day. If the butler had remembered Joseph, he would have been released and would have gone home, would have never been there to interpret the dream of Pharaoh. This whole story, it's, it's an important pivot for the next chapter. But aside from all of that, what's most interesting about this story isn't the particularities of the dreams or the interpretation or what follows. What I find interesting is what this whole story illustrates, the picture it paints. For starters, all three men in our story find themselves in the exact same prison for vastly different reasons. As mentioned before, the text clearly states that the butler and the baker have done something to deserve their fate. We're told they offended Pharaoh. Not one of them or the other, both of them. Literally, in the Hebrew, this word offended, it means that they sinned against Pharaoh. The word offended, sinned, it means to miss the goal or to incur guilt. They both did something to make them guilty. But in contrast with these men, Joseph, he finds himself in the same prison under totally different pretenses. Joseph, unlike the butler and the baker, Joseph is a completely innocent man. Joseph is in this prison, but he's guilty of no crime. He sinned against no man. And yet, we still find Joseph sharing the same cell as the guilty for one simple reason. And that it was all part of God's plan to use Joseph to save the world. In a sense, while the butler and the baker are in a prison of their own making, God sent Joseph into this prison. And what a radical picture we have then of Jesus. Think about it. Jesus, a man also sent by God to a prison that we all share, a prison called earth. An innocent man sent to share a cell with the guilty. And like we see in Joseph's life, not only was Jesus innocent, but it was a critical part of God's plan for salvation that he be sent you see, before Jesus could be our Savior, before he died on a cross, rose on the third day, was exalted to the right hand of the Father, sound like Joseph? It was required he first join the human experience. That Jesus joined fallen man in our prison to share in our suffering. Like Joseph, Jesus 
was sent into our condition for a simple reason. In Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus said of himself that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In Hebrews 4, verse 15, we're told that in Jesus, because of all of this, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because in all points he was tempted as we are yet without sin. This word sympathize, it indicates that Jesus' heart resonates with ours. If you have any musical background, if you take two tuning forks in the key of C, you hit one, what will happen with the other? It will start to ring. This is the word we have here. When your heart gets dinged, in heaven, Jesus' heart rings. He can sympathize with what you're going through, not in some intellectual understanding, but in a practical, real understanding. Well, Jesus, Jesus doesn't know what it's like to have your spouse leave you, betray you, hurt you. Jesus wasn't married. How does Jesus sympathize with that? Well, if you examine the fact that Jesus describes you as the love of his life, every single day he has people he loved enough to die for, reject him, and spend eternity with. Jesus can sympathize with what rejection looks like with what hurt, with what pain. Jesus sympathizes. You see, Jesus is not only an effective comforter to the prisoner because he willingly entered our prison. Jesus came into our circumstance to provide the same message that Joseph relayed to the butler and the baker. Jesus came with two messages. A message of restoration, life, and one of judgment and death. From the larger perspective, what we have recorded in this chapter is a story of one prison filled with three very different men. We have Joseph, who is a type of Jesus, a suffering servant, completely innocent of any wrongdoing, sent by God to a prison to become a savior. And yet we also have the butler and the baker, which I see as a picture of sinful man. You know, what's interesting about them is that they're incredibly similar, aren't they? They're both guilty. Joseph serves them both. They both receive a revelation from God. And yet while they're incredibly similar men, the fate of each dramatically diverges, doesn't it? The baker, we presume receives his just, just punishment, but the butler is graciously restored by Pharaoh. And what's the difference, honestly? Like, why does one of these two guilty men receive grace and the other judgment? Personally, I believe the answer resides in a subtle detail most overlooked within our text. Notice, Joseph, he explains to them what? interpretations belong to God. But then we find contrasting responses from these two men. Verse 9, look at it. We're told that immediately after Joseph says this, what happens? The chief butler told his dream to Joseph. But then in verse 16, look at it. We get a different reaction from the baker, don't we? We read, when the chief baker saw 
that the butler's interpretation was good, he tells his dream to Joseph. Whereas the butler seems to demonstrate an honest desire to know what God was trying to reveal to him. Joseph's like, dreams, the interpretations, they belong to God. And his heart jumps. He's like, yes, yes, tell me. I want to know. But the baker, the baker appears only interested. Why? Because his counterpart had received a favorable interpretation. Like in a profound sense, because their motivations for knowing truth were radically different, the application of the truth yielded very contrary results. I'm convinced that the sole difference between these two men really boils down to a matter of their heart revealed in their motivations for hearing Joseph's interpretation. The butler genuinely desired to know what God was revealing to him while the baker seems largely indifferent. So how interesting that as a result, the butler ends up receiving a message of restoration while the baker finds himself facing a certain judgment. Beyond all of this, I also find it fascinating to note that the butler, the butler is restored by Pharaoh. Keep this in mind. Not because he's innocent. That's never told us. He did something to offend Pharaoh. And we're not told he's restored because he's innocent or more innocent than the baker. But instead, what the text implies is that Butler is restored for one reason. Pharaoh's grace. His unmerited favor. We don't know why. This man, we know so little of. But what we do know tells us that he's a man who entered, he entered the prison, a guilty man because of his sin. And yet he found himself set free and ultimately restored. Why? Because of his faith in God's word. In conclusion, consider with that in mind, the essence of the butler's dream. A dream that contained a message of salvation. A message that this man longed to know. A message that ultimately afforded grace, salvation by grace and not deservingness. How does God reveal all of these glorious truths? He does so in a dream that presents a picture of what? The pressing of grapes that come from branches of a vine. Now, I don't think the butler or Joseph or even Moses for that matter would have understood the significance of any of those things in the moment. But it is rather amazing that the very first mention in the Bible of both the vine, branches, and the fruit of the vine come from this very dream. First mention. And that becomes significant to me. And trying to understand what God is really saying in this dream, when you take what Jesus said in John 15 into account. Jesus said in verse 5, Abide in me, and I in you. And then note, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And then he says, I am the vine. 
You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. This man is given a dream, a dream that leads to salvation by grace and not deservingness, and the whole picture is fruit of the vine. There's a picture of Jesus. You see, revealed in the butler's dream is the essence of salvation itself. This man was saved because his life yielded fruit, pleasing to the king for one reason. It came from the living vine. And so, Father, Lord...